0: All right, guys, open uh, your Bibles to uh, the third chapter of the book of Depression. Um, (laughs) For those of you who haven't been with us, it's Ecclesiastes. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually a good book, Um, a really good book. So far, I think it's been a blessing for for a couple of us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Try not to sing this as we read it. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Time to be born, time to die, time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man, there we go. Boom, let there be volume. I think they almost start over now, you know what I mean? Like that needs to be said with that, you know what I mean? I perceive that whatever God does, verse 14, endures forever, nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Uh, we've been doing uh, this series, uh, three, three sermons deep now. This will be the third one in Ecclesiastes, which in large part has to do with answering the question of what life's about. Um, specifically, uh, is life uh, meaningful or is life meaningless? And in large part, um, Solomon here, we're calling him Solomon, so um, uh, is playing the fool. Uh, He's uh, basically letting us know how bleak this whole deal is if you remove God from the equation. That life is meaningless altogether if you remove him who created it. Um, If you live just in the box, if you live just uh, in that which is under the sun and not in him who is beyond the sun, there is not a lot to look forward to. There's not a lot of purpose. Um, there's not a lot of value. Everything's kind of just random chance firing off, right, and chips just falling where they may. It's just life happening to us, and so uh, Solomon's going to give us more of that today in chapter 3, more of the same uh, that you've got in the last couple weeks, Um, and the poem here, as he's given it to us, we all, we all know the song, right? By the birds, I think it's 60 something. And I think the way that they intended it, by the way, I think they used every word in verses one through 10 other than like six. Like it was pretty, pretty thorough. But I, I believe their intention in that song when they wrote it was to let people know that even when life like hits you hard and, and, and kicks you and gets difficult, just hold on, because right around the corner Um, it's gonna turn, like it's gonna change, it's gonna get better, Um, and and that was the intention, so it was a song of hope, and and, um, Solomon's actually not writing with that intention, if you notice. Um, He's he's writing in the same way that he's written everything else. Uh, It looks pretty bleak, in this case, this poem that we have here uh, in the first 10 verses reveals the great absurdity of life because each activity listed here cancels out the other. Um, in, in other words, there's 14 pluses and minuses. And, and if you add that up, it adds up to zero, <laughs> right? So thanks again, Solomon. Awesome, you know? Uh, so, so, so with this view, uh, with the way that Solomon's writing this, life is just a big fat non-plus, right? just, a, just a non-plus. Uh, but we're actually going to go ahead and skip to the end um, in how we walk through this poem. We're not gonna play the fool with Solomon this morning. We're gonna go ahead and skip to uh, the part uh, where there is a creator, there is one who created all things that exist and who appoints all seasons and times in life. Because there's two ways to look at this, there's two primary views. One is that everything just happens to us and the other is that everything is absolutely purposed for something bigger. And so we're going to go ahead and take that road. You guys cool with that? All right. Um, So we're going to go beyond the box uh, with our interpretation here. It's easy for us to think, um, uh, at least for me, reading through this book, of the atheist over and over and over again. The atheistic worldview or state of mind or or outlook when considering uh, things just being random or chance or out of control, but there actually exists a large number of Christians that unfortunately also hold to a worldview that in a lot of ways resembles atheism. We call it practical atheism. So you'll have a lot of people that say they believe in the God of the Bible or believe in Jesus Christ, but they actually live out their lives, they actually believe in many ways and function in many ways as if God is not close, as if God is not involved in everything that God's just here uh, to get, get, hand out tickets to heaven and then he, he like goes away and does something and, and waits for everything to fall. Um, and that's kind of like practical atheism. If you were to ask the average American if they believe in God, a ridiculous amount still, like some like 80 plus percent, I think, would, would say yes, that they believe in God. But if you follow up that question with the question, what do you believe about God, This is where everything starts to parse itself out. This is where everything starts to fall apart and and divide. Uh, All the variations and all the discrepancies would surface. If you were to ask people, is God in control of world events? Most people would probably be okay with that. They'd probably agree with that. Um, it, 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 in a sense that they would agree that, that God's in control of like sporting events, like their favorite team, like winning the World Series or the Super Bowl, or um, that God's involved in like promotions at work or like good things that happen to us, good fortunes that come our way, like God's definitely you know doing that. He's in control of that, or even like near misses, right? Like a car that almost hit us, or uh, recovery from a health condition that was bad, we would say, yeah, God's, you know, in control of that stuff. But if you ask those same people, does God control natural disasters? Does God control the Holocaust? Did God control 9-11? Most of those people would say, absolutely not. He had nothing to do with those things. Just like some of you are saying right now to yourselves. In 2005, there was a sociology professor from the University of Notre Dame named Christian Smith. And um, this dude coined a phrase for a group of Christians that he had been studying for a while, made up mostly of 20 and 30 somethings. And um, this this phrase that he coined is what best described what he found in those studies of of those uh, 20 and 30 year old, uh, their working theology. Uh, what their working theology is, what their active faith is, what their active belief in God is. And the phrase that he coined is moralistic therapeutic deism. Have any of you heard of that phrase? Moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, moralistic means that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. Okay, Therapeutic means the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And then deism, which is that God isn't necessarily directly involved in their life, except for when he's needed to resolve something or fix something or supply them with something, like a, like a blessing, okay? So basically, God's like a sky fairy, right? Who's, who's just, who, who like, when he's not handing out goodies, he's absent, he's like off somewhere doing something and even though the people holding this belief claim to believe in God, it's a worldview that resembles much closer an atheistic one than a Christian one, because it's still one that leaves you largely just going on about life inside the box, chance karma, your own works, randomness, and nothing else. You're on your own, and I'm gonna go out on a limb and claim that this is not just a dominant theological worldview held by 20 and 30-somethings. This is a dominant worldview a theological worldview regardless of somebody's age in the day and age that we live in. This is common Christianity in America. Now, why in the world do I tell you this? Why do I lead with all of this? Well, because moralistic therapeutic deism is not new. It's old. Uh, It just has a new uh, title now, like a a new coat of paint. Just like everything else in the book of Ecclesiastes, this too is nothing new under the sun. It has always been a pair of glasses that people have wore to view God themselves and the world around them to attempt to make sense of the nonsense. If your working belief is through those lenses, mankind is still largely ultimately alone and he's alone because God really isn't in control of everything, he just makes appearances every so often. And Solomon this morning is going to take up his pen, and he's going to begin to write to remind Israel and to remind us that God isn't just the God of our favorite sports team, or of prosperity, or of close calls, or of healings, but that God is the God of everything, everything. Every season in life, every time in life, that he does all things, works all things, performs all things, is involved in all things actively and continually. So today what we're going to see is the sovereignty of God in all things. All power, all control over everything that he owns because he made it all. He is below nothing that exists. He's above everything that exists and he's active with it and he's working in it. We're gonna see this in two parts today. Part one, the extent of God's sovereignty, verses one through 10, and then uh, part two, the beauty of God's sovereignty, verses 11 through 15. Now, I have to say this before we text it up. Um, I'm gonna teach some things today that may bother you, and, and some of you are like, well, you already have. Like, you've already made like, a couple statements that, that uh, I'm just not getting on the bus you're on. You know, um, but, but I am. I mean, I'm going to say some stuff today that, that may just like cut you a little bit. Um, don't be surprised in the next 45 minutes if you find yourself objecting to some of the statements that I make. It's normal. Um, I just want you to know, believe me when I say that our, our like our intention when we teach things like this, is not to push you away from god it's to draw you closer to him it's so that you may know in a fuller way who he is who this this god is that we actually worship who this god is that we read about in every page of our bible but ignore most of it because we don't like what we're reading there is so much blessing to be had there is so much joy to be had there is so much more comfort to be had in the christian life by getting to know him in a more full way. That's been my prayer for you all week because I remember how I felt when I first heard some of these things. Um, Some of you may say, after hearing this this morning, that's not the God I believe in. I refuse to believe in a God like that. I I did that, that was actually my first response to this when someone led me into the, the matrix of God's sovereignty I remember at Claire's as day as a brand new Christian sitting on a parking block after church smoking my after church cigarette when, when, when this dude walks outside and starts to talk to me about the sovereignty of God. And my comment as I got up and like moved my smoking to a different parking block was like, that's not the God I believe in. And the reason it's not the God I believe in is because um, I, like you, like to make a God that I agree with 100% of the time. And that's called idolatry. You know what I'm saying? And, and so that, that's why people, like my prayer's been for you that, that, you, would, that, that you would humbly consider that it, it, it's okay that we don't like everything and every truth that we hear about God. I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I'll be the first one to admit when it comes to what I read a lot of times in my Bible concerning God and what he does and what he's like. Some of it I straight up don't like. A lot of it I straight up don't agree with. It makes no sense to me. I have no problem with with going ahead and being honest with you on that. But I But I believe every bit of it. I trust that it's right and I'm not. And so this is what we need to do every time we open our word and we approach the God that we say we believe in and and worship and rely on, is that he's right and we're not, even if we don't get it. And this is going to be one of those today where there's things even that I'm going to bring up that that I still don't get, but it's just clearly, clearly revealed to us concerning who he is. Um, Let's Go ahead and kick right in, verse 1. You're like, this is going to be a long sermon if you're just starting this. Verse 1 says this. For everything there's a season, and there's a time for every matter under heaven. Um, question, says who? Like, according to who? Like, like, right here we have established by Solomon that there um, is... For everything, a season, and there is for everything a time or a matter. So there's uh, uh, an appointment for these things. They're appointed. Actually, if we go ahead and and just skip to his conclusion in, in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So Right up front, we know that we don't have um, just life happening to us. We don't have just randomness, which is what you will see if if, um, your life is void of God and you're void of faith, um, and and you're doing life just under the sun and not with the one beyond the sun. That's all it's going to look like. But Solomon's actually letting us know right here, like, this is not that, like, this is not random chance. This is not just life happening to you. This is not the chips just falling where they may. This is all appointed. Everything I'm about to, to talk about is appointed by God. He brings it all about. Now let's look at what God has appointed under heaven. Verse two, a time to be born and a time to die. <clears throat> no one has ever, as far as I know, decided when they would live. I don't think anyone that I know has ever decided who their parents would be, I don't think I know of anyone who's ever decided what country they would be born into, or what part of the country they'd be born into, and this is staggering to think about, considering that just these three things right here dictate a majority of the trajectory of the rest of our lives in a way that is beyond us. There are so many factors from this, these three things that are completely out of our control as far as where our lives go that it's almost unfa- it's overwhelming to think about and they're not ours, they're his. Same with death and, and I know what some of you are saying right now, oh, but, but I eat right, oh, but I exercise a lot, you know what I mean? Um, I, I made good life decisions, I was careful. I was careful. <laughs> Surely I have a say in how long I live, right? Job says this in Job 14.5, man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you. He's talking to the Lord. And you, the Lord, have appointed his limits that he can not pass. Can't pass them. The line is drawn and it's his line, not yours. It's his. God has determined a time for each of us to be born and to die. Now now either our Bible's right or it's not with these things. He says there's a time to plant and there's a time to pluck up what is planted. Um, yes, God has put uh, in place laws of nature that determine what we can grow, where we can grow, and when we can grow it. Some of you know this too well. Some of you hate this. My wife hates this. My wife is a green thumb. She would plant her life away if she could. That's all she would do from here to eternity if she was allowed to, but she can't. You know why? Because we live in Sun River. We have two weeks of growing every year. You know what I mean? She can't do it. We've tried greenhouses, we've tried all that stuff. Those things have been determined, not by her, they've been set in place. And, And God can even overrule these things. We can see in the Word of God where he can walk up to a piece of land and say, you're going to be barren, even though it's well fertilized. Or he could do something like he did in Jonah, where this dude's up there sulking over Nineveh because they repented and came to the Lord. And he causes a plant to grow out of the middle of the desert overnight to shade him. Like like God can determine that stuff, and he does determine that stuff. And there's a time for it. There's seasons and times for growing. Verse three, a a time to kill and a time to heal. Um, This is where some of you are really gonna want off the bus. This is where it's gonna get really weird. God determines when someone is to be killed and when someone is to be healed. I know that hurts. Think about this, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the father, and it doesn't say knowing it, like some of your translations do, that was added. If you have a a real drop-down formal equivalence, it is just without the Father, meaning doing it. Then Jesus goes on to say, how much more is he directly involved when it comes to you and I, when we die? We're more value to the Father of more value than the sparrows. When a tragic act occurs, when someone dies too soon, we cannot say God did not allow this. We cannot say God did not approve it. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I know this is heavy, but most true things are. I don't even know where to begin when it comes to biblical examples of this. Our Bible is full of these of God doing these things. I think one of my favorites is 1 Kings 22, where you got the evil king Ahab, and then you've got Jehoshaphat, which was um, the king of uh, Judah, so they were split into two groups at that time. So Ahab, Israel, Judah, up here in, um, or uh, I'm sorry, Jehoshaphat and Judah, and then you got this, this little podunk, like nobody prophet named Micaiah, not Micah, Micaiah, and it all has to do with this land um, that I always forget the name of. Uh, we're just going to call it Gilead, okay? And, and the Syrians actually owned Gilead at that point, but it actually really kind of belonged to, like, Israel. And so one day Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat, and he's like, you know what, dude? Like, they've been sitting on this piece of real estate for too long. How about you and I partner up and go take it from them? And Jehoshaphat's like, heck yeah, let's go do that, right? So they get together and Jehoshaphat says, why don't you bring all your prophets together and let's see what they have to say about us going into battle and taking this land. And so they do and all these prophets come together and they're like, what's gonna happen if we go to take this land from Syria? And all the prophets are like, oh, it's, it's yours, it's done. Just go take it, you're good, no problem at all, right? And Jehoshaphat finally like, he looks at uh, Ahab and he's, and he's like, do you have like a different prophet that might have something different to say. And he's like, yeah, I got this dude, like his, his name's Micaiah, but like, I hate him. Dude's a jerk. No, seriously, like, all he does is say bad things about me every time he comes to <laughs> prophesy. And like, I can't stand this dude. And Jehoshaphat's like, go grab this dude, let's see what he has to say. So Micaiah comes in, and, and Ahab's like, hey, um, if we go take this land from Syria, like, are we cool or what? And Micaiah's like, what would your other prophets say? And he was like, they said we're good. And he's like, well, there you go, then you're good. And, and Ahab goes, No, like, tell me what you really think. And he's like, Okay, like, when you go into battle that day, you're not coming back. You're going to die. You're killed. Boom. And uh, so Ahab gets mad. He's like, See, Jehoshaphat, I told you, like, every single time, dude. Like, nah. So, so he, he, he locks up Micaiah. And as Micaiah's being carried off to prison, as Ahab's going off to battle, Micaiah looks over and he says, if you come back from battle today, I have not heard from God. And Ahab goes off into battle, and, and Ahab's now thinking like, okay, this is kind of crazy. Um, like, um, he was a little bit scared, so he's like, I'm going to thwart the plans. I'm going to make sure that, like, if he is right, um, that, that it doesn't go down that way. So he's like, I'm going to dress up like a common soldier. I'm not going to look like a king. I won't be targeted. Nobody's going to pay any attention to me. I'm going to get into a common chariot, and I'm going to go into battle, and I'll be fine. Like, you know, I'll be a step ahead of God and Micaiah. Okay? And so he goes in to battle. And we read uh, this in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 34. But a certain man, just a certain man, Syrian, drew his bow at random, (laughs) at random, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate, and he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded, the bottom of his chariot's filling with blood, and his chariot driver turns around and carries him out, and he dies. What are the chances of that working out like that? I'll tell you none. There are no chances. Just 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 the armor part alone. He's in a moving chariot. A random dude. A random dude pulls his arrow. Right. Everything's moving, and it hits him in an area where there's not even really any exposure. Like it's an impossibility for this dude to, to for an arrow to find its way in there. Right. But it's all random. No, it's it, it, it's not random. We would have to conclude that that arrow was a sovereign arrow that was directed by a sovereign God. It was appointed because his line was drawn. There's an appointed time to kill. There's an appointed time to heal. And they both belong to God. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. There's a time for desolation. There's a time for population, a time for vacancy, a time for occupation. How many nations have you read about in your Bible that were stacked that were powerful, that were reigning, ruling, nobody could rival them, nobody could even think about coming against these nations, gone. No longer exist. You only see them in your Bible or in history books. They're gone. Where are they? They were used for God's purposes and then they were discarded. They were only ever great or built up because of him and they're no more because of him. Um, How many of you guys, some of you got chainsaws, some of you women might too. I don't want to like hurt anybody's feelings. If if a woman wants to be included, go ahead. But how many of you have ever like taken a chainsaw and gone out to cut wood in your backyard and at some point while you're doing it, your chainsaw looks up and says, look at how rad I am, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Look at how good I cut wood and I'm talking sober. Got to include that because I know some of you, sober, (laughs) right? It doesn't do that. You're the one who got the chainsaw out. You're the one who put oil in it. You're the one who put gas in it. You're the one who adjusted the choke. You're the one who pulled the cord. You're the one who had your finger on the throttle, and you're the one who moved it along so that it could perform that which you needed it to perform. This is how God is also with everything he's made. He is the one behind it. He is the operator. He's the one pushing the buttons and pulling the triggers to accomplish that which he's trying to accomplish, which he's going to accomplish. It's the same idea. Four, a time to weep, a time to laugh, that which causes us to cry as well as that which causes us to laugh, both given by God. Both emotional human responses to human experiences, one that's enjoyable, excuse me, one that's not so much so, um, both appointed by God. Here's a couple difficult verses. You ready? Job 2.15, shall we receive good things from God and shall we not receive evil? What's he saying? He's saying, of course, when they both come, they're from God. The things that make us cry, those are from God too. Uh, Again, moralistic therapeutic deism would reject this. What Job is saying here is astounding. Um, He's saying that every horrible thing that has befallen him was directly appointed by God. Every bit of it. This dude lost his house. He lost his farm. He lost his cattle. He lost his livelihood. He lost his kids. He lost his health. He lost his wife. He lost it all and he's making this statement. You did this, and I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. I'm gonna follow you anyway. I'm gonna trust you anyway. I'm gonna stay behind you anyway. What kind of theology is that? Does your theology allow for that? He knows that God is behind it all. And he continues to trust him, continues to follow him. He he trusts what God can see, not what he can see. He trusts what what God knows, not what he knows. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, everybody? Amen? Amen? Amen, right? And I create calamity and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. It's heavy stuff. Again, does your theology allow you to have this? Some of you might say, yeah, but then Jesus came and he was like way nicer than the Father. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he wasn't like that, <laughs> right? Like, like, nope. Like I, I don't know of any, I don't know of any um, deliberation table or conference table in heaven where the Trinity sat around and like tried to hash out or argue out how things were gonna go down. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they all agree, all the time, that they're one, like Jesus claimed they were. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Like everything that God ever did, there were the other two in one agreeing. They are not different. It is not good cop, bad cop. When it comes to the God of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament, they are one. They are the same and they completely agree. All three of them together as one do all things that come about. All of them. Amos 3 says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? What does that produce? It produces sorrow, it produces tears, it produces weeping. A time to weep and a time to laugh has been appointed to us. Next, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. This goes along with that. Uh, There's a time to pull down the shades and to snuggle up with darkness and loss and depression. But praise God, there's also a time to party. And I'm not talking about getting smashed. You know what I mean? I'm talking about a time to release joy to drink up every bit of it. Jesus was very familiar with both of these when we look at his life. Verse five, there's a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. There's a time to build and a time to demolish, to construct and destruct. God appoints this too. And how can we possibly understand his ways in this? How can we possibly understand this? How can we possibly understand why he chooses to demolish this structure and allow this one to stand? Me and my wife went through Detroit Lake a year ago after the fires. It was our first time through there. Just like every fire zone post-fire I've ever gone through. Nonsense. Random nonsense. Makes no sense. Here's a house standing untouched. There's one gone. There's one gone. There's one up. There's one gone. It looks ridiculous, is it? It's hard to understand. It looks extremely random. And that's all we're gonna chalk it up to unless we understand that God has appointed a time to bring stones together and to disperse them. Even on a local level, even on a a micro level. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to refrain from embracing. Affection, expressions of love, even deep intimacy and sex. There's an appointed time for it, and there's an appointed time for its absence. Guys, there's a time to light a big fire in the fireplace, and we're all like, yes, and there's a time to let that fire die down. We're like, boo, but it's true. (laughs) Both appointed by God. You know, we may tend to think that surely God stays out of this part of our lives. No, our sexuality is not random chance either, but appointed also. Well, where in the world do you get that in the Bible? I don't know. The genealogies? You know what I'm saying? The names that had to be where they are in the list? Even the unsavory ones. Even the ones that were conceived and brought about in unsavory ways. Appointed ordained. Verse six, a time to seek, a time to lose, time to keep and a time to cast away. There's a time to pursue something and a time to cease pursuit of that thing. Does anybody else have the Bermuda Triangle in their house? Because I have one in my house. And I can't blame it on my kids anymore because they don't live there. So like when, when I'm losing stuff and then pursuing it and going after it and going crazy and pulling my hair out, it's my fault. I don't know where this stuff goes. I don't know where it's at. There's a, and there's a time to let it go. There's a time to stop looking. There's a, there's a time to stop turning over furniture on these things. There's a time to go to a garage sale, and there's a time to have one. And, and me and my wife haven't learned to have one yet. Like, we just, we're really good at going to garage sales, aren't we, honey? Oh, Lord, help us. We just go and go and go, and we find stuff, and, and then we never have a garage sale. There's a time in life for good fortune, material accumulation, financial gain, pay raises. There's also a time in life for pay cuts, for job loss, for investments failed, for stock market crashes, for financial drought. And it's all his, it's all his when it happens. Seven, verse seven, a time to tear and a time to sew. This is the idea of separating and mending, whether figurative or literal. It could speak of relationships, but most likely it speaks just, again, of loss and and gain. In the Jewish culture, when there was a loved one who was lost, a garment was ripped. When new life was brought forth in the same culture, a garment was made. Yeah, seasons, seasons. Appointed by God. Time to keep silence and a time to speak. This one's a toughie uh, for me and for probably all of you. Um, So like the question is like who appoints the mouth, right? And it's like, well clearly I do. Like I've proven that over and over again in my life, um, unfortunately, uh, that, that I do, no question. But so does he, so does he. Do we think that he's strong enough to shut the mouth of lions but not men? Do we think that he's powerful enough to make a donkey talk, but not a man? Psalm 139.4, David says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before we know anything about that word on our tongue, he knows the fullness of it. In, in other words, who's filtering first? Who's evaluating potential causes and effects first, even with our words? Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And we determine all kinds of stuff within us when it comes to what we want to communicate and how we want to communicate it, but that which surfaces or doesn't is ultimately determined by the Lord for his purposes. And some of you, again, are going to go careful now, and so let me go ahead and qualify this for you. God is not the author of sin, but because sin exists... He directs and appoints every bit of it for the greatest good of his purpose. Every bit of it. So it is not something that comes from him. It's something that comes from us. And because it comes from us, he's going to use that too. He's going to use that too. I've seen it over and over again in my life. He works in spite of us. Again, he's... He's not restrained by that which exists. He's over everything that exists. It all exists because of him. So he can do what he pleases with it. He closes out the, um, oh, I'm sorry. I still got another one, huh? I was about to shortchange you. Verse 8, time to love and a time to hate. God uses this too, there's a time for opposition, there's a time for unity, a time for strife and harmony, a time for war, and a time for peace, oppression, tension, power trips, takeovers, whether it's at a local level or a global one, God has his finger on the button of war and peace. God is standing behind and above it all when it happens and when it doesn't, whether it's with a ruler or an emperor or a king or a president, God turns the heart of that man or woman whichever way he chooses to perform that which he ordains. Again, we see this everywhere. One of the weirdest things to me is found in Isaiah 10 with the king of Assyria, not Syria, who we talked about earlier, Assyria, where in Isaiah 10, we see this king just chilling, like he's at the top of his game. He's got no worries, no problems. He's in a time of peace and prosperity, and he's just soaking in his power. And it says that God comes to him and puts in his heart to make war with Israel, with his own people. So, so he's just kicking it. Like he's not, he's not thinking of going and, and overtaking anybody else. So God comes and he puts it into his heart to go have a problem with Israel and he does. That's weird stuff. Why? Because God had an appointment to judge his people right then and he chose to use these people. And so he put it in his heart. There's a, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. The weirdest part of that story comes later, where after it's done, and he, like, lays Israel to waste and goes back home, God then goes and judges him for what he did. (laughs) You know, like, like, again, like, there's things I don't get, but, like, they're right, because God does them. They're right. I accept it. Weird stuff. He puts peace into into the heart, and he puts war into the heart. And then he closes out the poem by concluding in 9 and 10. What gain is the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Again, this is appointed times and seasons. It's not chance. It's not randomness. It's not chaos. It's not karma. It's God who does all these things. And I know that some of you are going, dude, like, just stop, like, you're ruining everything. You know, you've already messed things up. Well, I'm not having fun anymore. <laughs> um, I have to think about this. And, and, and the truth is, like, I hope, I hope that I've messed some things up if that's you. Because if you have believed, like, the atheist or the moralistic therapeutic deist, that God set everything in motion and then watched it fall apart and then retired to his easy chair while he's waiting for you to be a good person, while you attempt to navigate a world of meaningless chance and randomness, then yes, I'm trying to screw that thought up. I'm trying to mess that up because that's not the God that we worship. That's not what he's doing and that's not how it's gone down. If you believe that God is only partially sovereign, completely limited, unable to perform or prohibit certain events, only able to be God over good things but not bad things, then yes, I'm trying to mess that up. I'm trying to mess that up. See, here's the point. God is much bigger than we ever thought he was. God is much bigger than we ever thought he was. He is much more active than we ever thought he was. He is much closer than we ever thought he was. He is much more to be feared than we ever thought he was And he's much more glorious than we ever thought he was. And it's because he's continually and actively working all things together into a fullness of eternal meaning and worth through his intricate and intimate involvement in everything. It's really hard to have a problem with some of what's been said today, but then you love Romans 8.28 so much because this is the reason why we love Romans 8.28 so much. Do you know what that is? A lot of you have it on your refrigerator probably. Some of you probably have it tattooed somewhere. If you're a cool Christian, you have it tattooed somewhere. Right? Like that's the verse. And you know why it's the verse? It's because it gives us comfort in knowing that God is absolutely in control of everything. And he's in control of absolutely everything because he's bringing about a meta-narrative, a big deal, a conclusion, a wondrous work for all eternity in everything that he's doing. It's all completely purposed. It's completely purposed. It's all completely intentional that God works all things to the good. We know it starts. We know that God works all things to the good, to those who love him who are called according to his purpose, not yours. According to his. Why? Because he knows best. And we take comfort in that, don't we? What a glorious verse. What a glorious thing to meditate on. When life starts slapping us sideways. Oh, like, oh, like, this was supposed to happen? Like, okay, you got this, God? Like, you sure? Okay. Okay. All right. Sorry, I don't know where I am. Um, All of this is about... God having a grand plan, if you haven't figured this out yet. God has a grand plan. And it's all um, coming to uh, the, the, the point of reveal through the times and seasons that go down in our lives. Um, and I need to say this. What that means is that you, you and I are not the centerpiece of this thing. Um, we're not the centerpiece of life. We're not the centerpiece of God's plan. His glory's the centerpiece. He's the centerpiece. His narrative is the centerpiece, not us. Just for some reason, he's invited us to come along for the ride. He's he's, he's invited us to ride shotgun on this deal. I don't get it. I don't understand why he's, uh, he's invited us to enjoy this grand eternal plan, but he has. But it's not about us, it's about him. This church does not exist because of you, it exists because of him. It doesn't exist for you, it exists for him, for his name to be made greater, for his story to be told farther. It's all about him. It's all about taking the biggest spotlight that we have and sticking it on him. We are not the centerpiece. Once we get this, that we are not the centerpiece, we are able to see meaning in the random stitches and threads of life. Um, when I was a kid, I used to spend my full summers in Bishop at my grandma's, because most my, both my parents worked in Los Angeles, and so they would ship me and my, my brother up to Bishop, and we would stay with grandma. And grandma was always um, doing needlework. Like she was always working on, was it a hook latch? And I, I asked this last week too. And so it's like one of those big like mesh things um, with the big yarn. You know what I mean? And um, the thing was like I hardly ever, I I remember uh, one summer when I was there, um, like whenever she would get up to go to the bathroom or make food or something, she would lay it down upside down. Um, And I don't think she did it intentional. It was just she, I I don't know why she did it. She would lay this thing down when she would get up and stop working on it upside down on the couch. And so every time I would walk by and get a glimpse of this thing, um, it looked really horrible. Have you ever seen the bottom of those things? They don't look like the top. Um, and so there'd be like a weird like thread coming out over here and then a couple over here and like it looked like nothing I remember thinking to myself like grandma, you need to stop um, You need to stop doing this because you're not very good at it uh, I didn't know what she was doing and then I remember one day When she laid it upright and I was like like what the heck? Like I thought it was a different piece, but it was the top and there was um, like cohesiveness and, and um, uh, there was intention and purpose. There was an image, and I picked it up and looked at the bottom just to make sure it was the same deal, and it was. Like like all of those random threads like had a place on the top, you know, and I thought, gosh, you are, like you are pretty good at this. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sorry I doubted you. And this and this is really the reality for you and I as believers, moving through time and seasons in life, is that we're, it's so easy to, to look at this, the nonsense that goes on and say it's nonsense. This is a random thread. How can this random thread possibly mean anything? How can it have any value? And then it does. It will. Everything becomes beautiful that he is doing in its time. The problem is that you and I right now are living by faith, not sight. We're looking at the bottom of the needlework, not the top. And this is what Solomon's telling us here. This is what he's letting us in on, is hold on. Something amazing is being done by God, every bit of it purposed and intentional. And it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth every bit of it when he flips that thing over. You're going to know exactly what it is. Without a doubt, the most horrific, seemingly random, chaotic, agonizing disaster that's ever occurred in world history is when the Son of God was pinned to a cross. Have you ever placed yourself in the shoes of the disciples for those two or three hours that that went down? Like, can you imagine what was going on inside of these guys? Their thoughts, their hearts, what they are experiencing, the emotions, that everything was lost, that, that everything went completely sideways. Like what's happening right now, they must have been thinking as they, as they like shrunk farther and farther back into the shadows of that crowd. This wasn't supposed to happen. This, 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 all hope is lost, all hope is lost. Th- this is a complete failure. Three days later, the tomb empties. Forty days later, Jesus bodily ascends to the Father before their eyes. Seven days after that, the Holy Spirit falls on that room. And these guys are empowered with the Spirit of God. And it goes on and on and on a thread, a thread, a thread. Everything starts to be revealed. We know that none of it was random chance. It looked like everything had gone wrong when, in fact, everything was completely under control to come to the best possible outcome that it could. Acts chapter 4, verse 27, 28, Truly in this city, this is Peter praying, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined, predetermined to take place. That was God's story. That was God's plan all along. But it looked like an absolute disaster. It made no sense. It was the bottom of the loom. There's a commentator that said, the kingdom of God advances from triumph to triumph, every last one of them cleverly disguised as a disaster. Why? So that man cannot find out what God is doing until the time of its grand reveal. Just like with Jesus. Verse 11 tells us this, basically. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's a surprise. It's a surprise what God is doing until it's a reality. It's all the bottom of the needlework until it's flipped over. It may not always be enjoyable in the moment, but it will be fully enjoyed for all eternity. And Solomon also says in 11 that that man knows that this can't be true Eternity's been put into the heart of man. We know that this can't be it. We know that there has to be something more than what's going on now, and we do. And and that's what's being prepared now is for what's coming then. This is not the main event, Christian, and I wanna remind you of this because I think sometimes we forget that we're aliens, sojourners and just passing through, and we start to dig in and um, get really comfy here. This is not our home. This is not our home. This is not the main event. This does not even compare to that which you and I are going to see and experience someday. Much better things. Because we know, those who have faith, that is, that we have uh, seen, that what we see, perceive, and experience going on right now is not the final result. We can actually live well now in the midst of it. This is the secret to Christians living in ways that they shouldn't be able to live is because of who they believe in and what they believe he's doing. He's working out like like highly affects how we're able to live now in the midst of the chaos. Verses 12 and 13. Again, we're going to just move fast through these. I perceive perceive that there's nothing better for them than to, to, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. It's God's gift to man to enjoy the life that we're in, the circumstance we're in, the predicament we're in, all of it. We can be joyous now, we can love others now, we can take pleasure in what it is that we do now, regardless of what's going on around us because we know him. We know who's in control of every bit of it. I love the story of Jesus on the boat, sleeping while a storm is raging. You ever thought about that? Like I've known some heavy sleepers in my life. My dad's easily like the most heavy sleeper. I've seen him sleep in places that just should not be possible, like soundly. But I, I have never seen a more sound sleeper than Jesus and what we see on this boat. Because the, 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 um, the narrative says that the, the storm was so brutal, the waves were so big that they're going up, over, and down. They're crashing onto the boat so hard that they're starting to break the boat apart. It's beating the boat up. That's how hard, that's how violent this water is. And he's sleeping, like I don't think so. <laughs> he's, he's sleeping. And they wake him up and they're a little angry because he's not pulling his hair out like they are and tripping out like they are. They wanted him to, you know, just be tripping it, losing it, like then the sky is falling. Do you guys remember uh, Chicken Little? You know, Chick- yeah, chicken little, the acorn hits him, and he's like, the sky's falling. And um, so, a lot of Christians have been like that lately, too. So, stop. Stop. That's, I guess, my point. That's my point here. That's my point here. It, it's like, we need to learn how to sleep on the boat. It's okay for us to sleep on the boat. That's actually what Solomon's saying here, in a sense. Like, you're looking at all these depressing things that add up to nothing, and then he's like, yeah, enjoy it, take pleasure in it. It's like, how, how do we do that? Well, we do that in the midst of the storms around us if we firmly believe that God's in control of all it. This was Jesus' conclusion, right? They finally wake him up and they're like, what are you doing, dude, we're about to die. And Jesus goes, you of little. That tells us almost everything we need to know about why he was sleeping and what that moment was for. He's proving a point. That you and I, as people who know God, who follow God, who trust in God, can go through the most horrific events that life can throw at us and we can come out the other side fine because of who it is that we have faith in, who it is that we trust. Jesus shows us that. Solomon's saying, it's okay. Like, enjoy your life. Like, find joy there. Thank God for every bit of it because it's a gift from him. Enjoy it. All right, closing 14 and 15 really quick. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which which will be already has been and God seeks what has been driven away. The script is locked in. The script of life is determined. It is eternal and to know this is to fear God. To know that it is God that holds the narrative of every season and every time and every detail of your life is to learn to fear Him because there's nothing He cannot do. It's all His. To know that He's truly above all things that exist and that all things are at His mercy, not the other way around, ought to cause all to fear Him, His mercy. Why? there's nothing he can't do, that's why. There's nothing God can't do. There's a lot we can't do, there's nothing he can't do. He can do everything and he does do all things. Therefore, we do not fear man, we do not fear nations, we do not uh, fear financial difficulties or health conditions or tragedies or death or bad things. We fear him because he's over all those things. He controls all those things. They answer to him, not the other way around. The script is his, the narrative is his, and that's great news because he's got the best one. He's got the best one even when it doesn't feel like it is. Even when it looks like a random thread that's out of place, we can be sure that God is building his perfect narrative. His perfect narrative. Lord, thank you um, that even though these things are hard to grasp, that that you actually pull back the curtain and let us peek behind it to things that are so, um, um, infinitely beyond us. It's so hard for us to grasp how some of these things can be. And yet, faith tells us that, it, that it's very true, every bit of it. And so we thank you, Lord, for uh, your patience with us. We thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you that you've chosen to take things that you probably could have kept hidden by all rights and, and, and reveal them to us, to give us a peek. I thank you, God, that this world is not out of control. I thank you that everything going on around us is not random, just falling and firing off wherever, but that you are behind all of it doing something, God. And because we know this as your children, I pray that this is the narrative that we carry to people that don't know you. I pray that we would have a heart for people, Lord, that are walking around right now with hopelessness because they they look around and see meaninglessness and I pray that we would be people, the feet that carry the good news that tell them, oh, no, this isn't meaningless at all. There is great meaning in the person and work of Christ. And so give us that boldness, God, and, and, and make it our joy to do so to your glory. Amen.